This edition of the movie is referred to as the director's cut. It's really a misnomer. It's not really the director's cut because the theatrical version is also the director's cut. So the proper term for this is probably the director's extended version of the film, although it's not really an extension of it because it's not just longer. It's different. There's some shots that have been taken out and some other pieces that have been added. So if you like, the proper term for this is probably the director's revision a month and a half or two months after he released the picture. And it's, it's more extensive um, but not really extended. In this extended version of the uh, picture, which is actually the way the, the picture was originally scripted, the um, idea was to locate ourselves underwater and emerge right in the middle of an offshore powerboat race, which were passed by Johnny Tomlinson's Bacardi Silver in, that, in this race. MTI, and then we find ourselves in the middle of a race, and we're in uh, the Crockett and Tubbs boat. This was shot over about three different days. The underwater part was shot in um, on a separate day, and then we did our we shot actually within an actual race uh, off Miami, which is what you're looking at right now. We also then staged our own race with a smaller number of boats. In this aerial shot, uh, and Craig Hoskins is piloting this helicopter. He's a spectacular helicopter pilot. He's a poet. We're looking at the uh, at the MTI, which is a brand name. It's Marine Technology Incorporated, run by a guy named Randy Schism, who's a spectacular boat builder. And we built two of these MTIs, uh, only because you have to have two of everything when you're making a picture. And they were custom manufactured for our purposes because they had to have a lot of internal plumbing to carry cables and recorders and, and have places hard miles so we could mount cameras and even lights we thought were going to mount at one point, which we did not do. The boat passing him is being driven by Johnny Thomason, who was a world champion, uh, offshore powerboat racer, and also was the uh, guy I recruited to do all the training for, uh, for Colin and Jamie. His boat is the same boat. It's capable of going up to about 200 miles an hour. This is the entry into Miami, and I wanted to, my ambition was to try and generate a big distinction between people who remember the television situation 20 years ago, in which Miami was very much more of a uh, kind of a small city to the world of Miami that we find today, which is muscular. And uh, that difference in, in Miami is a dynamic city. This is Dominic Lombardozzi, who's frequently seen on The Wire, who's a tremendous actor out of, uh, out of New York playing Switek. And we don't really know what Crockett are doing in an offshore powerboat race. But they obviously have some other kind of agenda, which is revealed here. And they're surveilling um, a meet that's taking place and with uh, a man named Neptune, who's a pimp. Miss Cuba. Hi. This boat scene in the, the uh, offshore powerboat race um, did not open the movie at the, in the theatrical version. And that was very, very difficult for me to, to take it out of the picture. But I wanted the theatrical experience of seeing the movie to inject you without any prelude right into their Saturday night. It's like it's 11.17 on Saturday night, and at 11.18, the movie begins. 
We are now in a club called Mansion, and it's a it's a famous disco in South Beach, and we're actually in that. This is the actual location, which we took over, and Croc and Tubbs are surveilling, awaiting the arrival of Neptune. In setting up background and character, the, the, the tricky part of this for me was that the characters are so well known uh, in everybody's memory of the, of the television show. And so part of that is a platform I could rely on, meaning that there was some storytelling I did not have to do because everybody knew who Crockett and Tubbs were, which meant that I could spend the available time hopefully getting more intensely into, into their characters. On the other hand, there were some revisions to who these, to who the worst characters that I wanted to do. So that required almost a kind of a reconditioning. One of the things that uh, Don Johnson benefited the role of Crockett with was the sense of a very self-confident guy, a guy who was very easy with women and uh, a certain flirtatious quality that he had. Where are you from? A Crockett hits on the bartender, and that was uh, intended to have you experience a little something about his character, so that you feel that he's casual, he's at ease talking to women, and he's flirtatious. What's your name? And it's to establish a contrast with his uh, later contact that he's going to have with uh, Isabella, played by Gong Lee. In the meantime, the place we're in called Mansion also used to house a famous disco in the 80s when we were shooting a television series in Miami called Xenon. This is a sampled remix of um, Superman by Nina Simone. And they're surveilling a meet that's taking place with uh, a man named Neptune, who's a pimp, played by a tremendous Nigerian actor named Isaac Dibankoli. This is all backstory, a certain group of pimps who will sometimes seek to entrap the Giants, particularly if they're important. Tubbs is more of a revised character than, than Crockett. Uh, one singular impression I wanted to make was that violence towards women is something that uh, upsets him deeply. And when he sees the third prostitute that Neptune has shown up with, being abused. Tubbs knew a couple of things about it right away. He probably spotted her right off as being a Haitian immigrant, probably taken off a boat. And whose work as a sexual worker isn't completely consensual. She's being exploited. She may be an illegal immigrant. There's a substantial amount of that goes on in, in Miami. And so he kind of, in a volatile way, loses it. And uh, when he sees her being abused, starts going after Neptune. We've also introduced by this point Trudy, played by the extraordinary British actress Naomi Harris, and Gina, played by Elizabeth Rodriguez. Naomi's uh, background is she is a Cambridge grad, and she did three years uh, Shakespeare at the old Vic. 
And uh, she can also be seen in Pirates of the Caribbean Part 2 and 3. And uh, both girls spent a lot of time in New York City working undercover with some with a variety of DEA operations and had a lot had a lot of interesting experiences on the, on the street and uh, it was part of the formation of their of their character. <laughs> Nevertheless, this whole Neptune pursuit is a routine. Every week or weekend, they could be making a move in a very undemanding undercover, almost routine undercover assignment, posing as John's working local prostitution. Neptune should ease up on the merchandise. They're undercover, busting something as ordinary as a pimp named Neptune. When they get interrupted, and I wanted it to be as routine as possible, what it gets interrupted with is the urgency of an informant they haven't worked with for six months who sounds as if his life is ending and something terrible has happened. And when people are in that state of mind, they communicate in fragments. It's not coherent communication. It's only the fiction of drama that has us render that in some coherent fashion so the audience can understand it. But I think audiences are very bright. And if they're paying attention, then you, you get what you need to know without knowing exactly what happened to Alonzo, but that it's bad and he's saying goodbye. Alonzo, what are you talking about? I'm falling by the house, and then I'm gone. So whatever you can do for her, OK, Sonny? A uh, sense of urgency I was hoping for audience to experience goodbye. would be the same way that that urgency and emergency would impact on Crockett and Tubbs. Somebody would call you in a panic. You wouldn't know what they were talking about necessarily at first, and information would be coming to you in fragments. And that's the way information gets characterized when it's assaulting you in a very immediate way. And so that's what they're getting. They're getting all they know is that something really bad is happening with Alonzo, who's somebody that they haven't worked with for six months. So then kind of working backwards, I was trying to give you a sense of real immediacy and the necessity to think fast, almost as if you're experiencing what's happening to Alonzo, just the way a real Crockett and Tubbs would experience. And they rushed to intercept him. There is an implicit explanation in this scene and some of the other scenes about how informants like Alonzo and another man we, we will meet later named Nicholas uh, work. There's a, there's become a kind of an industry. Uh, informants will, will make anywhere from 10 to 15 percent of, um, of the deal. Government will pay them cash money uh, for 10 or 15 percent of the deal that they're working. So, for example, if Alonzo is, as an informant, uh, is introducing Crockett and Tubbs to somebody who could launder money, because Crockett and Tubbs may be undercover as trying to bust a money laundering operation. So they will pretend that they are, uh, say, cocaine importers who have a lot of cash that they want to launder, and they will get Alonzo to introduce them to a money launderer, let's say. If, there, if there's $10 million that get, gets laundered, 
the government sometimes will pay people like Alonzo 1.5 million. So it's a, it's a, it's a highly paid profession and obviously incredibly risky. But that's who Alonzo is to Crockett and Tubbs. The addition that, as often happens, as undercover cops working with informants, they forge sometimes very close personal relationships. They never forget which side of the law they're on and which side of the law the other guy's on, but there's a lot of trust that operates in these relationships, so sometimes there's a lot of closeness. And that's the case in this relationship between Crockett and Tubbs and Alonzo and his family. What's up? To make a lot of this. What about Neptune? It's Neptune's lucky night. What else did Stevens tell you? He said that it went bad, that he didn't give us up, told us goodbye. What we're seeing here is actually the, some of the patterns, the post, uh, you know, this millennium's patterns of organized crime, which include cultures and ethnicities that weren't typically in the 80s and 90s uh, involved in sophisticated levels of drug trafficking, money laundering, identity theft, but in fact are now, including some white supremacist groups, in this case somebody modeled after the Aryan Brotherhood. And Brotherhood is primarily a prison gang that mostly operates within prisons with some street activity. There's a particular nihilism about this group that made them opportune to use as a group of drug importers operating in South Florida. With some of the other research we did in um, motorcycle gangs and white supremacist gangs and the business model of their organized criminal activities in reality is not the paradigm that people are used to. It involves much more sophisticated organization of money laundering, of labs, of distribution networks, and in some instances, even though events get very lethal, there are no Harley Davidsons in evidence, people walking around in business suits, and it's all become a big sophisticated business. Hey, Ivan. Russian number one is played by Pasha Lishnikov from the uh, Moscow State Theater, and uh, the second guy is Maxim Danilov. This is an interesting sequence from a technical point of view. This is a um, visual effect shot, and what you're seeing are three different components combined. The car itself was shot without people in it, of course with actual live 50-millimeter rounds from exactly the kind of rifles that are being characterized here. So the uh, destruction is real. These weren't squibs going off. Obviously, we separately put actors in seats and were able to put the actors from the green screen background that we shot and combined them with the actual uh, destruction of the car. Some of the training that Colin and Jamie did had to do with uh, driving, whenever there were driving cars, we went to uh, great lengths to make sure that they could do it. That meant driving on wet skid pads, dry skid pads, uh, braking turn and throttle control, braking exercises, uh, and then running road courses at low speed and high speed. Guys like usual, you know, feds, Russian speakers. I was the middle The image of Alonzo's wife, which was emailed to him to extort his behavior in uh, revealing the identity of the undercover FBI agents to the Aryan brothers. 
that image is the image of a woman with a C4 necklace around her neck, which is something that's frequently used in kidnappings that occur in Colombia, where they want to extract either a ransom or coerce some other activity from a husband of the kidnapped victim. Typically, it's usually uh, remote controlled and can be detonated from a distance. So the shape of that C4 necklace is from uh, some actual crime photos we got our hands on. They knew one rush was up the from the get-go, so they knew I knew. Rico, I gotta go. Lonzo. Lonzo. This is John Hawks playing uh, Alonzo. He's this wonderful, wonderful actor who's seen on Deadwood. He also played the lead in an independent film called Me and You and Everyone We Know, directed by Miranda July. You don't. He's one of those that young group of actors coming up, and as a director, you just spot these people who show up on the horizon suddenly and have extreme talent and, and are very dimensional. They said they wouldn't hurt. <laughs> they lied. Barry Shabaka Henley, who's both a close friend of mine and a wonderful actor originally from uh, San Francisco. Or well, was actually born in New Orleans, but uh, his family moved to San Francisco when he was young, when he was a Berkeley grad. Turn around. Turn around. Look, we know these people. He played the uh, jazz club owner in Collateral and also had a very significant role in an uh, Ali opposite Jamie Foxx and Will Smith. What the hell just happened? What was that? Who's this? He needs to talk to you. I'm for Jamie. We talked on the phone. So this is your operation? Yes, we command level. Alonzo to you and you got his whole family killed? What did you jump some amateurs into a game they ain't ready for? What the fuck happened, what? man? Trian got killed. Cool down. Kieran Hines playing Fujima, the FBI SAC, S-A-C, which stands for Special Agent in Charge, which means that he's the man who runs the Miami FBI office, is an Irish actor, as of course is Colin Farrell. In fact, there are very few actors doing their native accents in the whole movie. I gotta assume my operational security is compromised. Compromised, your whole opsec is blown, you're stone cold dead in the water. That lightning flash was not a digital visual effect that's real. We found ourselves shooting in the middle of the uh, worst hurricane season of record in Miami, and consequently, we were always either pre-tropical storm or just post-tropical storm, so either weather fronts were either on their way in or on their way out, and consequently, the, uh, the skies had this 
uh, a lot of dramatic activity like lightning flashes and thunderstorms. So you want to recruit us? Identify them. Who are they? How did they cut into us? How do we get into them? Right now, Crockett and Tubbs are trying to figure out, um, motivated by the death of Alonzo and his family, and the close relationships undercover cops typically forge with informants like Alonzo, motivated by that, that death. They are recruited to go undercover and discover the identity of the group that was responsible. He outsources his transportation. The only avenue into this group, they determine, is going to be to deliver a load to them. So we transport a load for you into this group? So Crockett and Tubbs are going to go undercover with the fabricated identities of something they are very experienced in, which is smuggling, meaning that the exporter that the Aryan brothers are supplied by uh, outsources transport. So Crockett and Tubbs will go undercover as people who sell the services as transportation, running loads in. The FBI has documentation in the aerial surveillance we just saw of the, uh, the smuggler that uh, Aaron Brothers' supplier, a man named Jose Yarrow, who's offshore in uh, Colombia. The transport that they normally use, Croc and Tubbs are able to identify by boat type and by the MO that it's being run by somebody named Sal Maguda. Sal Maguda is a real person who's currently in prison, I believe, uh, who was a rather famous smuggler. What'd you spot? What they have identified is two deep V, meaning V-shaped hulls, with a lot of horsepower on the back, i.e. four 250-horsepower Mercury outboards on each boat. Typically, these boats would run up to 70, 80 miles an hour in seas with six to eight feet swells, which is a very long, very rough ride, particularly at night with no lights. Must have just unloaded. Colin and Jimmy went through a number of exercises that we designed to simulate the experiences that real undercover cops would encounter. And many of these were taken from the curriculum for very advanced training that the DEA, ATF, ICE, which is Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, which is part of Homeland Security, put advanced undercover agents through. They're simulations, but they're as close to real simulations as you can possibly get. And they included the uh, running a load in from seven miles offshore at midnight without lights and using radio codes. Uh, we transfer load boat to boat, and it's, um, it's one thing to say it. It's a whole other thing to find yourself seven miles away from Miami in the middle of an ocean and two small boats without any lights with uh, some significant swells, and, and, and which then turned into chop as the wind kicked up, and you're throwing loads from one boat to another, and then you're racing in ashore, and then when you're about to go to the place where there's gonna be a drop, you get a coded radio communication that it's under surveillance, and so you gotta fall back to a second drop, and when you get to that second drop and you're ready to unload it to the customers, he makes the count and finds out you're one short, that you're a whole kilo short, and then an argument ensues, and it starts to get dangerous, and these are some of the some of the exercises and some of the simulations that we, we put the guys through. Then uh, Jamie and Colin went through a really rigorous training from uh, Mick Gould on uh, close quarter physical combat and, uh, and, and to have the, 
the, um, the sense of themselves and their bodies and how they handled themselves and how they moved. And, uh, and much more importantly, the attitude, the psychological attitude and confidence. What's up? Somebody, something's got to go somewhere, somewhere. Not too distant in the future. Except the air transport problems. Call Columbia. This is a marvelous British actor named Eddie Marsan doing a New Orleans accent. He was the priest in uh, 21 Grams, plays a Edwardian impresario in a movie called The Illusionist, and is spectacularly talented, extremely authentic actor. And I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to uh, the kind of actors who find adventure in uh, submersing themselves so totally in a role as do Eddie Marsan and Barry Shabaka Henley. Naomi Harris's accent, which is coming up, is brilliant. It is perfect. There are people who edited on this film who weren't around the shooting and never actually met her in person for six months and when in uh, an editorial. Then when we had to do some post-dialogue recording, they actually met her. And they were shocked that she had a British accent. They just completely believed that she was from Brooklyn. You made a 15% commission off three money laundering prosecutions. I put you into. You know, which is why you live in your $4 million condo. And you question who we call Sonny. Just her pronunciation of the word condo is just absolutely spot on. This is Justin Thoreau, who's a young New York actor who just started directing. In this take particularly, Fox has this way with language, I think, that also comes from his musical background and music training, and the way of dragging out a sentence, and just the way he changes down the rhythm. Almost changing the time signature that, uh, within that sentence, and it says the word body. Why is this happening to me? Because you lead a life of crime. Can't do time, don't mess with crime. Elizabeth Rodriguez probably got into better shape than anybody on the whole of the movie. She became f ferocious. We're now in a whole different environment, and we don't know where we are. The sense of it is that it's foreign, and if it feels foreign, that we succeeded, and how we succeeded is actually in the color temperature of the interior lights. We came to call them when we did the color timing on the film in the end that we need Paraguayan lights. It's redder than normal tungsten, and uh, we wanted to give the sense that you've just cut to see Jose Yero, to whom Nicholas is trying to sell the services of Crockett and Tubbs. Some of the, uh, the overall training that, that Jamie and Colin had gone through in addition to the physical preparation for the role, uh, was the character who who they were, where they came from, where their parent, who their parents were, where their grandparents were. And in Tubbs' case, they were from New York. And perhaps his grandfather was an educator who was involved at a very early period in the civil rights movement. And his son, Tubbs' father, became an attorney. There was an expectation that Tubbs was going to become a doctor or a lawyer or something. And so they were somewhat disappointed when he moved into police work. When Tony Yerkovich wrote the pilot's screenplay for the show. I read it in 1984, 1985, and um, when I first read it, my first instinct was to have this not go forward as a pilot for television series, but to make this as a feature film that I would direct. It was, uh, that wasn't possible, and it was already at NBC, and so we went ahead and, and did it as, as a television series. 
But way early on, my attraction to this material was to direct as a feature film. So this wasn't a kind of afterthought in 2005. It wouldn't be a new good first idea to go ahead and, and, and direct this as a movie. I had always wanted to do this material, this content. Someone said, well, what exactly is it about Miami Vice that impelled you to, uh, to do it as a film? I think the answer to that is, is that it contained in what Tony wrote a combination of, 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 of large, very dramatic events in which people's lives are changed, violence occurs, uh, deals are made, deals are broken. The environment in which it's happening is almost like an opiate. It's almost too beautiful. That combination of, of drama happening in this very lush, romantic place, those two things together made, made everything poignant and magnified. That was the allure. That was, that was the real attraction to me, why I wanted to make it into a film in 1984 and 85, and eventually did in, in 2006. A crack and tubs are now immersed within the fabricated identity of these smugglers. They're living in what they will call a safe house. And they know the people are gonna, that they are operating against are very sophisticated and are going to run their own counter-intel. Hey, that, that means that um, before uh, Jose Arrow entrusts them with a load, and he's going to run his own counter-intel, trying to identify them, find out who they are. And he will run the same kind of make on them that a police department would typically run on anybody involved in the criminal activity. They will check their identities. They'll search within Justice Department databases for um, prison records to validate who the players are. What Trudy has done is skillfully construct a fabricated identity many levels deep, knowing that a couple of levels will be penetrated. That means they expect Jose Yero to penetrate through that layer and maybe a couple other layers deep and find, as she says, their deeper, hidden, more criminal selves. What you're seeing now is, is, is where Jose Yero and the Montoya operation actually resides. We are in Ciudad del Este, which is where we actually shot this. And it's kind of a wide open city on the borders of Paraguay, Brazil, and Argentina which are divided by a river and the, and the amazing Iguazu Falls, which is about 11 times bigger than Niagara. It's a, it's a multi-ethnic community. Aside from Paraguayans, there's a significant uh, ethnic Chinese population and a significant uh, Middle Eastern population who are mostly Lebanese and Syrians. And most anything can be found in Ciudad del Este. All the, uh, a lot of the protection is private sector security. And we, we work very closely with uh, Interior Minister Valde of the Paraguayan government and spent about five months setting up, being able to, to uh, come to Ciudad Leste and shoot and had amazing cooperation from, uh, all, from the local authorities in Ciudad Leste as well as um, a lot of film crew that we actually recruited on, a, um, on kind of the assistant level on, on down and in the art department. Uh, the, the uh, sophistication of people engaged in the kind of fast turnover in commerce, the, their language abilities was, was intimidating. Uh, typically, someone in an allocation department would be, parents were from Taiwan, and she spoke Mandarin, Cantonese, Spanish, Italian, and English, and had just gotten a law degree. 
from London University and was back home for the summer. And then she was working with us in, on our location crew as location scout. And she was typical. There was a, it's a vibrancy about about the people there. We had tremendous experience working there. Museum, your own. The meets in Haiti. I'll negotiate the price in person. Call me after you've landed in Port-au-Prince, because only when you're on the ground will he tell me where you are to go. The weather, the skies, the color, the lights, the, the, the air uh, is perfumed. And the, um, so it's, it, there's an idyllic sense of life and, and just all around you physically in the Caribbean and in Miami, which then can also turn dramatically in some kind of Wagnerian way, very dark when in the hurricane seasons and, and it starts to storm. None of these aerial shots in the film are the result of any kind of visual effect or trick. They're simply shot from other aircraft. This was actually shot on the same island, but on the other half of the island in the uh, Dominican Republic. So we weren't actually in Haiti, we're actually in the Dominican Republic. And we're in uh, Santo Domingo right now. And this is a neighborhood called Capitillo, which is not really a favela in the sense of the favelas in Rio de Janeiro, but it is its own neighborhood. And the groups who control the neighborhood really control the social services, the security of the neighborhood, with rather informal ideas about wiring. We changed all the signage from Spanish to French, the language of Haiti, and um, work very, very closely with the locals in this area. It took probably another four or five months of pre-production and working with neighborhood groups and, and our relations with, these, with the folks who live in this area to enable us to shoot uh, three key scenes in the area. We provided work as, uh, as extras. Uh, we rented locations. We augmented some uh, educational, some health facilities in the area. And when people were displaced from their homes because we were shooting there, we provided some like daycare facilities and had some outdoor movies. And we were able to shoot in this area completely without incident and with a lot of cooperation. We didn't even have a graffiti problem at the end of the day. And on the surface, Capitillo is considered to be a pretty rough area. So the sagacity of the location department and the production department and how they worked with the folks in this area, which was done in an extremely respectful way, is what uh, enabled us to feel it was a, uh, both a secure and an enthusiastic area for us to bring the film company into and shoot. In our location scouts, I came across some uh, spectacular murals and wall painting in Rio. And um, we weren't going to be able to go to both the Dominican Republic and, and Brazil. So consequently, we licensed and reproduced some of those images from Rio de Janeiro. And they're the images that are on the wall of this club that Jose Yero owns, that Croc and Tubbs have walked into to have their negotiation with Jose Yero. And knows all about us before they call Nicholas. That way we don't waste our gas. Or our motherfucking time. Hey, 
In this scene in particular, I, I think that there's real painting with light going on here and the way that the uh, shafts of light from above, the way they illuminate the uh, characters against the back wall and uh, allow Yarrow to roll, move back, backwards in his chair in and out of in and out of light, and what you see and don't see of the murals behind Crockett and Tubbs. I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen. They're gonna come in here. You know what they're gonna say? They're gonna look around and they're gonna go, "Hola, hell. That's some crazy motherfucking wallpaper. What is that?" Jackson Pollock. Jose Yarrow knows more about Crockett and Tubbs than he's letting on, and he's testing them, he's challenging them. We can close each other's eyes right now real fast. Then ain't nobody gonna make no money. The economics of the drug trade go something like this. Crockett and Tubbs will be paid $3,000 a key to run 1,000 keys into South Florida. They will be told where to pick it up. They'll run it into South Florida. They may or may not warehouse it, and then they'll be told where to drop it off. What Tubbs is proposing is the way that they do it is they don't want to have contact with any of Jose Arrow's people. What they want to do is they will put that the 1,000 keys into an 18-wheeler. The keys will be in the ignition, and the money will have exchanged hands elsewhere so that the money and the guns and the drugs are never all at the same place at the same time. So Crockett and Tubbs are very skilled in their trade craft. Yarrow, even though he's challenging them, this is really what he wants to hear. He wants to elicit how these guys do business because he doesn't want to entrust a 1,000 kilos of flake with Crockett and Tubbs. That means Crockett and Tubbs' end for moving the drugs from point A to point B will be $3 million. The, um, the rest of the economics of it is that it costs approximately $500 for Yarrow's organization to produce a kilo of cocaine. That's packaging, moving, all accumulates about $500. That kilo is worth $15,000 on the street of Miami. So the profit multiple is huge. So Yarrow will, on the 1,000 keys, which is a relatively small load for a major cocaine producer, uh, it's a test load. On that load, uh, Yarrow will gross $15 million on something that cost him $500,000 to produce, plus the 3,000 a key he has to play Crockett and Tubbs. So he'll make about $11.5 million on it. And I have ice everywhere. That part of what I do, you never want to find out about. Other people negotiate money and go, no go, yes, no. Maybe so. Not me. So what the hell are we talking to you for? I had to lay my eyes on you. Where's that? To see if you go meet the man. What Crockett and Tubbs are learning now is that Yero is middle management. Man. You seem okay. But him? I don't like the way trafficking organizations actually operate, not in movies, but in real life, as a product of, of uh, kind of our knowledge base and our research uh, that we did, is exactly how you would think they'd operate if you're talking about a business that has a tremendous cash flow, is highly profitable, and makes a lot of money. If you're running a business like that, what would you do? You would go out 
And since you have rather unlimited budgets, you would, you would hire the best money can buy. You would hire the best accountants. You would hire the best people to manage your money. You would hire the best people to invest your money in some kind of legitimate enterprises so that, so that you could go and spend it. And whether that's shopping centers in Germany or Malaysian Tenor Futures in Malaysia, that's what you're going to have done. You're also going to hire the best people you can find to run your security and to do counter intel. The counter intel you're going to run is uh, everything to do with uh, uh, signal intercept stuff where you are actually on the DEA's air, you try to get on the FBI's air, to human intelligence where you're where you may be bribing uh, telephone operators in a border town in Texas or somebody in Miami to try and get numbers of cell phones of, of DEA agents. So these are all the things that you would do if you imagine yourself sitting on top of a billion dollar uh, enterprise and you want that enterprise to run efficiently, what you'd be imitating is business. You are simply in business and you are in a very big business. Also, the people who might be approaching you to do things like bank your money for you, uh, sometimes are in other parts of the world highly legitimate banking institutions because the profits are so immense. So in asking myself as a writer-director, how am I going to characterize Jose Yarrow and the organization that he works in? What is the nature of that organization? You know, what, what, what is his corporate structure? What is his business plan? Because that will determine what he wants from Crockett and Tubbs. It will also determine how uh, his job, how he keeps his job, by being very good at it. And he runs counter-intel. He's the man who's responsible for making sure that they don't lose loads. So those structures are some of what Crockett and Tubbs right now in this scene are starting to encounter. They thought they were approaching a mid-level producer, Jose Yarrow, from the information they got from the FBI SAC Fujima. Instead, what they're finding is, as Jose Yarrow just told them, he's just a middleman. Uh, there's somebody called the man and they're about to meet him and all of a sudden they find themselves in a whole different higher order higher level of security the Middle of the city is suddenly vacant of people the outer perimeter security is being guarded by the Haitian military Their cell phones don't work meaning that their signal traffic has been blocked and the the private sector security being employed to frisk them and whose weapons handling bespeaks a lot of experience, a lot of trigger time. One's Welsh, the other's an Israeli. Paul, the Welshman, had just come back from Baghdad when we used him in this role. And uh, the blonde guy is a former Israeli commando. And typically, these are the kind of folks who are recruited. They may be ex-British SAS, they may be ex-French or ex-American uh, military who will sometimes go to work in private sector security. But it's a whole different order. Now, when Crockett and Tubbs are approaching the uh, three matching black SUVs, one of which is going to contain Montoya and uh, the woman, kind of like his financial officer who manages his money, Isabella, played by the stunning Gong Li. Um, this meeting and what happened in this meeting and the language of this meeting and the way it was set up was told to me by a confidential informant who was working for the DEA who had meetings in uh, a border town in Mexico with, with Amado Carrillo Fuentes. Amado Carrillo Fuentes at the time was one of the world's 10 wealthiest men and was a, was a drug lord in Mexico who subsequently died bizarrely of, uh, on the operating table where he was undergoing 11 hours of liposuction to try to change his, his identity. 
But Amada Cruz Fuentes had a meeting just like this, and it was it was fast, it was businesslike, it was very polite, and there was and he laid down the rules of how Crockett and Tubbs or, or how the people who would be working for him operated. I borrowed that interview that I had done with this man and uh, used it here in Miami Vice and and gave that language and that. Uh, and, and, and the logic, the character logic behind that language to Montoya. Uh, Montoya will tell somebody who's going to go to work for him after that person has been vetted by, by his middle management. He will tell him the rules of the game. And as Montoya says this one sentence, very striking to me, he says that uh, he doesn't buy a service, he buys a result. That means that you can't screw up and say, well, I tried to and I did everything I said I was going to do, but it didn't work out. That's not what Montoya is buying from you. Montoya is buying from you a happy ending. That's it. You don't provide the happy ending. You're in deep trouble and there's no second chance. And uh, on the way out, he tells Tubbs, thank you for coming down and give my best wishes to your family. And that strikes Tubbs as odd. And so two things are going on simultaneously. Tubbs is some concern for Trudy, and Crockett is making an, a, a connection with Montoya's money manager, who he also, there's also an implied connection, romantic connection between Montoya and Isabella. Gong Lee, some of the work she did was spend a significant amount of time with a man named Bob Mazur, who was a who was undercover as a money manager and a money launderer, and uh, while he was working both for U.S. Customs and then later for the DEA. And the significance of Mazur is that the role that he was performing, his fabricated identity, was as a man who moved money for drug cartels, and that job is the same job that. Uh, Guang Li's character, Isabella, has. Lord. Tubbs calls Trudy, concerned about the play reference to, to, with the word family, and he finds that Trudy's fine, she's bored, and she thanks him for the flowers. Thanks for the flowers. Flowers, what flowers? The bouquet. $500 worth of roses. Yellow. In the real event, Amado Cruz Fuentes had asked the informant that he was meeting to give his regards to the informant's mother. And the informant had no idea that Amado knew his family, his mother, where his mother lived or anything. And when, when he left and the, uh, the three black SUVs carrying Amado Cruz Fuentes left town, along with the private sector security and the federales and the, and the local judiciales, uh, he called his mother to discover that a bouquet of flowers had been delivered to her that said, salutations from your friends in the South. And it was a message to this man that if you screw up, if you betray me, uh, I know where you live, I know where your family lives, I know where your mother lives, I know where your dog is, I know your dog's veterinarian, and everybody will die. And that's, that's the threat.
Now, for Crockett and Tubbs, for Trudy and Gina, in this operation, they are undercover as players. They're undercover as smugglers. They live, they live in a safe house. They know that a sophisticated operation, which they now know they're dealing with, like Montoya's, would locate them. So being located isn't a reason to terminate the operation. Being located is standard operating procedure if you really are these smugglers running these loads. You know the other side will find out where you are. What would cause them to abort would be if the other side had reason to suspect that these people were really undercover cops. So they persist in it. Trudy says something very significant here. You're worried about me. I got Gene backup, dial 911, whatever. She can dial 911, she can have backup, she can have all kinds of assets to protect her. If your focus is on me, if your attention is distracted, you will miss something coming at you. I die if anything happens, you won't account of me. You worry about you. You are Sonny. Fine. But Crockett and Tubbs are the ones who are really extended into the most dangerous kind of undercover work you can do, which is doing undercover in a foreign country. In a foreign country, your badge doesn't count. Sometimes you can't carry a gun. If you can, you can be murdered for your shoes, and nothing can be done about it. So the degree of risk is exponentially greater doing the kind of work Crockett and Tubbs are doing offshore in Colombia, where they are right now, picking up a load to run in. They could be busted by local cops for illegally taking an airplane off on a dirt road right now and spend nine months in jail before anybody would be able to get them out. Or worse could happen to them. And it requires tremendous concentration and tremendous focus. So what Trudy was worried about was that Tubbs would worry about her because that could take his eye off the ball. Intuitively, he might be preoccupied with it. And that would mean that something that he might pick up in his peripheral vision, which would just trigger a, a sense of alarm that this isn't right. I'm walking into a club or a restaurant or a meeting or somebody's finca, and this just isn't right. This isn't feeling right. That, that, that those signals that they rely on might not be operating if he was occupied with worrying about her. And that's why she does not want Crockett or Tubbs to worry about her. This airplane is an Adams A500, and it's, it's a brand new plane. It had just been certified by the FAA when we got it. In fact, the serial number of this plane is 001. There was no 002. This was the only one. And it's, it's designed by the genius aircraft designer, Bert Rutan. And in our research, we asked ourselves if I was a smuggler, and I was flying loads in from Columbia. What is the ideal aircraft? And this is it. It weighs about 11,000 pounds, uh, has a 1,400 nautical mile range, and can fly low and slow for forever. It has almost no heat signature since it's all made out of carbon composites, and it handles like a dream. And what uh, Crockett and Tubbs are doing here is called pancaking. They're putting one plane underneath the other so that it just 
reads as one on air traffic controllers' screens. This was not a visual effect. This was done for real, again, with the coordination and, uh, and I think, brilliant piloting of uh, Craig Hoskin, our, uh, both our pilot and also our aviation coordinator. This is the Miami River, again, where we did a lot of shooting. And um, we shot this a lot on the television show. At the time, there was even more smuggling that was coming in on waterways. So there were uh, there was the, the confiscated small Caribbean freighters, all 20, 30 years old, really kind of tramp freighters, were like two and three deep, and you could barely get a boat down the middle of the river. There was so many that had been confiscated by U.S. Customs and, and at, uh, during that period. It got closed down pretty well. In the, from the middle 80s to the middle 90s uh, by the efforts of the DEA in particular. And uh, the Caribbean became a, a, a harder route, so consequently that uh, caused a lot of traffic to go uh, overland and move across the, uh, the Mexican border. And so that became the favored trading route. And, and, and then off of that came the emergence of, of two giant uh, trafficking families in Mexico, the Ariana Felixes in uh, Baja and uh, the Mata Creo Fuentes family in uh, Juarez, just below El Paso. What they're doing here is they stole this dope from Sal Maguda, knowing that it belonged to Jose Yero. Now they're doing a form of street theater, which is the term that a lot of the undercover cops that we dealt with uh, used. They're doing a form of street theater where they're, where they're presenting this as if they had come upon it, knowing full well this belongs to Jose Yero, and they're going to barter this to ingratiate themselves with Isabella to get the opportunity to smuggle that second load into into South Florida because they know that the first load was not going to their targets and they hope that the second load the second load is We want our product back. Sure. How much? How much? For what? For recovering that. So Crockett and Tubbs give them back their load, which outrageously they themselves stole. Some of the scenarios we heard from the 27 very significant undercover uh, officers that we interviewed in depth and who were part of the production uh, involved doing street theater that was sometimes much more elaborate and much more theatrical than this to convince a target that they were for real. Um, there were feigned beatings, feigned murders, uh, things that they had set up that uh, the undercover agent would direct the target away from seeing, all of which became very convincing. Give them the shipment on the 17th. They've already validated themselves. They've proven themselves with one load, and now they're trying to work up the ladder. By ocean, Autobahn Kia. And Isabella, who calls the shots in between her, she, and Yarrow, gives him that second load. And then Crockett's exhibiting something here 
called medalist syndrome that is also part of the research I undertook into what are the extreme extremes of undercover and if you're if you are somebody and you're doing that like a crocodile tubs and you're involved in really extreme undercover or, or enhanced undercover operations what does that do to you how does that feedback what does that make you into what kind of person are you to be doing that and if you whatever kind of person you are what happens to you when when the extreme undercover gets more extreme and, you, and your personality is really torqued out to the limit and one of them is a sense of feeling like you're teflon coated that you can pull off absolutely everything. And Crockett and Tubbs, having just pulled off conning in a counteroffensive, conning this very, very lethal and dangerous and sophisticated operation uh, by, by giving, gifting them back the load, which Crockett and Tubbs, in fact, had stolen from Salma Gurdas. Crockett, feeling that, you know, that energy, that sense of, of uh, infallibility, uh, takes it one step further, one step maybe even over the line, and he start and he 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 comes on to Isabella, and says, "Let me buy you a drink," and it's a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. And she agrees to go. Yarrow doesn't like it. Apartment building at sea that is very suspicious brings about attention. AWACS, Coast Guard, U.S. Customs. That's all bad. This location that we just shot in is on the southernmost point of uh, Key Biscayne, just outside uh, Miami. From there to Havana is about 90 miles. I take you to the best place for mojitos. Where is that? Bodeguilla del Medio. Oh, keys? Havana. Havana. Cubans don't like my business. And they don't like my passport. It's okay. The Hubbard method is my cousin. Colin Farrell himself, in some of the later shots you're going to see, is driving Mojo, the uh, MTI, and he's doing about 70 in, um, in very gentle six foot swells. The first seven or eight miles east of Miami, the water's only about 50 to 75 feet deep. Then it falls off to about 750 feet, and the water changes from this bottle green to this rich, rich blue, deep blue. And uh, and that's the Gulf Stream, like almost like a r underground, underwater river is flowing through there. That's where the water will change to this sapphire blue. So Colin's driving the boat, he's doing about 70. That's why the boat's getting airborne. The deck acts almost like a wing and provides lift, so that at about 70 miles an hour, the 6,000-pound boat is effectively weighing about 3,000 pounds. The point is, at 70 miles an hour to go 90 miles, it would take our Crockett about an hour and 20, hour and 30 minutes to get to Havana. Seventy miles an hour in a boat is fast. This location looks exactly like the Ramblas in Havana, 
and a location that uh, Colin Gongli and I went to was called Jazz Club, where um, I first saw Cubans in Cuba salsa. You like the mojito? Mojito's great. Dancing and salsa is ubiquitous. Everybody dances, everybody moves. Attractive people, skinny people, overweight people, young people, old people, everybody moves. Whether they're Chinese Cuban, Afro Cuban, Cuban Cuban, or Spanish, Hispanic Cuban, everybody dances, everybody salsas. And it's, uh, it's sexy, sensuous, and uh, I saw it the very first time on the first trip. I know I wanted Crockett to be a dancer. And he and Gong Lee probably trained for about three or four times a week over about three or four months with Henry, the salsa dance instructor. I know. Now, this is shot in a location that it could be an exact, it's a Ramblas too, but it's in Montevideo, Uruguay. It's not in Havana, Cuba, but it looks exactly like the, uh, like location, including the shape of the seawall in Havana. And Crockett hit on Isabella, probably driven by that adventurous spirit the, that, 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 that drives you further and further in undercover work to, towards one coup and then the next coup. And it's, uh, it's a, it's, that is the elevated experience of doing undercover work. And uh, what I don't think what he did not expect to run into was uh, the fact of the woman herself. And in that context, Crockett and his, both his undercover identity, his fabricated identity as Sonny Burnett, but then also with Crockett the man, is encountering the last thing he expected, which is an experience of a woman that's a lot more meaningful than he had anticipated, period. This is not the kind, this is not his normal M.O. His normal M.O. is a four-week flirtatious romances. He'll come on to a very good-looking bartender at mansion, they'll have a four-week romance, and then it'll end. So he likes superficial experiences as if he is avoiding uh, making a deeper commitment. The relationships never last. It's almost as if by selection, he's designing them to not last by who he picks to get involved with. But there's a symbiosis that emerges here between Crockett and Isabella here in, in, in subsequent scenes in which for given her character and her background and his character and his background, they are both uh, drawn towards each other and see in each other all they could ever expect or hope for and any idealized idea of how he would be with a woman or how she would be with a man. What I was looking for was for, for uh, Gong Li to feel that um, Colin and his Crockett um, had an impulse to protect her, to just in the simplest of possible ways to be there for her, to be for her as just as an impulse, as a woman intuits things. It may have been how he fastened a seatbelt around her waist, a small act like that, and it reminded her of something very distantly in her past. She owed. 
Isabella's orphaned in Angola when she was 16 or 17. Her mother was there with Cubans. Uh, her mother was a doctor. Uh, what befell her, we had projected as part of a background story, is that she wound up in Mali, and from Mali she, went, she wound up in school in Switzerland, and then she fell in with Montoya. Basically, since she was a late adolescent or a teenager, she had no, no experience of um, male figures who were other than in negotiation with her or exploitative of her or manipulative of her. And if she senses something different in Crockett, it probably brings back a memory of, uh, of an uncle or a father figure or, a, or someone who might have been a, a brother to her who was simply in, in, her, in her childhood um, provided for her, just for the sake of providing for her, just as a normal father would to a normal daughter. And that uh, latent memory uh, from long ago it probably triggers some kind of association with what she senses about this guy, Crockett, with a woman who he needs, needs her, is impelled towards her because the degree to which she needs him. He's more informed than she could ever possibly know about how much she needs him because he knows he's really there as a, under the cover of fabricated identity and that they're making significant moves on, an, on the whole of the criminal organization of which she's an integral part. So part of the jeopardy to Isabella comes from Crockett himself. And, um, and he knows that she's in more jeopardy than she knows she is in. Gong Li had to um, master the sense of what it is to be Cuban, to be a Cuban woman. And not just a Cuban woman, but a Cuban woman whose mother had taken part in the world and, and movements in the third world uh, in, in the 1980s. So we posited that her mother was with the 300,000 Cubans who were in Angola, doing part of it as a surgeon. And what, what that meant to do that, we spent time with uh, people on the medical faculty at the in, in Havana, um, who had who had been who were war doctors and who had been in Angola during that period, and and what it meant to be a doctor there. These pictures that just went by are pictures from the the rather large and uh, prominent beyond their size Chinese Cuban community. We spent time in. Havana, in which we, in which uh, Colin Gongli and I interviewed uh, Chinese Cubans, part of this community, and of course, the last part, last thing they felt about themselves was uh, their Chinese identity. They they had a cultural identity with China, but as far as they were concerned, they were Chinese Cuban woman who had been there for a generation or two. Felt she was a Latina. She would get angry with her husband if he behave poorly in the, in the way of any, as any other Cuban would get angry, and not, but not as someone out of traditional Chinese culture might get angry. Um, like to party, like to dance. And, um, and so a Chinese Cuban woman is, as you would expect, completely Cuban and completely a Latina. And that was the, or that was the uh, road that we, the path that uh, Gong Li and I took in her spectacular work in forming uh, her character. And I try to facilitate that. This house is based on a house in uh, Miramar, a suburb of Havana. 
and we built its exact duplicate here in Montevideo. Let's talk a different kind of deal. The bathroom and the tile are laminated photographs of the tile of the real house next door, which is a gem of Bauhaus architecture. It can't be more than about 1,200 square feet, but you, you just feel that you, when, you, when you were in that space, you felt you wanted to move in, get rid of everything except a pair of running shoes and just move in. So we duplicated that bathroom uh, here. And under production designer uh, Vic Kempster, a lot of the uh, specifics of this place were done by a very talented assistant art director. His name is Aaron Mann. No one else can. Who's absolutely relational. Comes up short, we make good. Your operation will run from now on out, risk-free. Crockett finds himself in a, in, a, in a solitary moment, conflicted in the shower. The dimensionality of Isabella as a complete human being with a history. Somebody's daughter, somebody's sister, everybody's somebody else's mother or son or daughter or sister or father. And uh, so too is she. And as he's come to know who she is, it is as if he has to remind himself what he's here to do. Um, these are some of the dynamics and some of the issues that emerged when I debriefed a lot of guys who did extreme forms of undercover, meaning they were undercover in foreign countries for a long time. They would assume an identity in a murder-for-hire gang that had evolved out of a biker gang and, and also involved in massive amphetamine manufacturing and distribution, and that guy would be under for six to nine months. That's a long time. What's up? Why? I'm on my way back. One of the issues that uh, I really wanted to know a lot about for, for Jamie and for Colin was, uh, why, why do you do this? What, is, what, what do you do this for? It's certainly not the money. Uh, what is the enhanced, the elevated experience? What's the high? And uh, almost everyone had the same answer, which is basically that they would say that when you're, when you're in the middle of a deal and you're putting it down and they've checked you out and you check out and you're telling them what's going to happen, and they're listening to you, and they believe you, and you're golden glowing and scoring like a champ, that's the high. And that sounds like an actor on a stage, and it's exactly what it is, except this stage is the real world, and there's no take two, and you don't get bad reviews if something doesn't go right. You can get killed. Secondly, uh, and questions about how do you prepare for being somebody else? How do you orientate yourself? How do you close down the real world and the real issues you have with mortgage payments and wife and children and the kids, and when your kids has a problem in school? How do you push all that aside, close down, focus in, and move into this role? And then what happens to you when you are in a role and are in a role for a long time? And that informed a lot of the preparation that Jamie and Colin did. 
And the, some of the answers were that the best cover is yourself. In other words, being someone just like who you are, except uh, with the uh, volume turned up and, and, uh, and, and a lot of disinhibiting going on, a lot of the normal inhibitions that we appropriately have because you're a law enforcement officer and you live a, a kind of a standard conventional life. And so you don't give rein to impulses. Uh, you have good impulse control. That has to be throttled back. So a lot of those restraints are gone. And uh, because you are spontaneous, you may be out there uh, negotiating a deal and somebody challenges you just to see how you're going to react. And, uh, and you have to meet that challenge and come back. And that's got to be spontaneous. That's not prepared dialogue. Right here, Crockett's exhibiting what happens when you are in character, because Crockett is not responding to Fujima like Sonny Crockett. Crockett's responding to Fujima like Sonny Burnett, a guy who makes his plays, a guy who, who gets out there, could entrepreneurially do and deal anything, who on a, over a weekend could make $3 million flying in a load, get right past U.S. Customs, right underneath the radar, and he is definitely jumping Jack Flash, and he's good at it, and he's a hot dog, and that gives him a kind of a medalist syndrome in which he feels uh, how aggressive and effective he is. That guy is not going to react passively to uh, some uh, bureaucratic obstructions. He's going to blow up right in this guy's face. Also, Fujima has talked about lying down with dogs. Fujima has no real experience. Gong Li's hardly a dog. And Fujima has no real experience doing this work. What's going on? As in? As in there's undercover, and then there is which way is up. The next issue, which is when your partner is starting to go out towards the edge, because that happens to undercover cops all the time when they're doing difficult undercover work. They get too carried away in the role that they're in. And sometimes it's the partner's role to bring them back, and that's what Tubbs has tried to do. Crockett proclaims that he has not forgotten he's a cop, but we know that inside he's conflicted. Which then takes us into an aerial shot over the Iguazu Falls, which is about five miles downstream from Ciudad del Este. As you're looking at the falls, Paraguay's on the right, Brazil's on the left, and then at the next river, you're looking at, at Argentina. And located there is the uh, villa of uh, Montoya. This house is actually a location in uh, Florida. And it was built by an architect named Max Strang. It is, in fact, his residence. Did you find it? Yeah. Montoya is based on a uh, North Valle or North Valley Colombian um, cocaine producer named Montoya Londoño, spelled M-O-N-T-O-Y-A hyphen L-O-N-D-O-N-O. Tell me about the deal in South Florida. He's played by a brilliant Spanish actor named Luis Tosar. All of this is being taken in by her in Mandarin, because Gong Li doesn't speak English, and she doesn't speak Spanish, and she, in fact, doesn't even speak Cantonese. 
So there was not just the translation, but also the difficulty for her in, in learning the part, because all the English she speaks is first translated, so she has complete command of the meaning and her character and what her character is feeling and saying. But then the actual words have to be translated into phonetics. A serious, ambitious. Surprisingly, Isabella just declares that she had an affair with Crockett and Havana, and instead of the expected reaction, Montoya simply says, and, and then Isabella runs down a personality profile of Crockett. And then he challenges her with the two different strategies hers of doing business with Crockett and Tubbs and Jose Yarrow, who wants to kill them. The phrase is actually a Mexican phrase when he says, promise them silver, but pay them in lead, meaning promise them money, but when the payoff comes, you shoot them. The lead, then do that. After the load is received, we will close the rice Isabella appears to be indifferent as she's run down Crockett, and we realize that Isabella is undercover too. So Crockett's undercover, we will try a few rounds with initiating an affair with Isabella to discover and get deeper into the organization and find out more about him. Uh, and on a, on a meta-emotional level, we know he has feelings that if you analyze them, you'd have to say are sincere, that he has sincere feelings for her and that are extremely powerful. Isabella, we've just discovered, is also undercover. She has no idea that Crockett's a cop, but her seduction of him has to do with providing information for her lover and her boss, Montoya. And we wonder about the ambiguity, what's, what's true and what isn't. And carrying both of those possibilities forward, Isabella lands in Barranquilla the plane she arrived in is a uh, Piaggio. The head of the company is Piero Ferrari. And the plane is, uh, I think they borrowed a lot of engineering expertise and design work from Ferrari. It's a gorgeous aircraft. It's a turboprop, and it goes 475 miles an hour. It's quite an achievement. The airport, it's the Punta del Este Airport, which is a, uh, a big dollar resort area north of Montevideo on the Atlantic coast in Uruguay. My intent that to try and structure that ambiguity and then and then answer it not so conclusively, but answer it in the sense that we feel that her heart is uh, truly with Crockett, that that's the true emotional place she's at, and then it's the same way for Crockett with her. Hola, chica. Hola, chico. The difficulty of not speaking English and just speaking Mandarin is that in English, we form the words in our mouth a very different way. Our tongue is in a different position in relationship to the back of our teeth. We use different facial muscles to make sounds that you don't make in Mandarin, and we breathe differently. So Lee had to actually develop certain facial muscles to make some of the sounds that we use in English in a consistent fashion, particularly since she was doing it in a very short time frame of, of number four or five months. 
This is my uh, second time with director of photography Dion Beebe. We worked together on Collateral, and then we did this picture together. The requirements of shooting in high def are um, are very difficult, and it's difficult for a lot of cameramen because it is an inversion of everything you do when you're when you're when you're working with photochemical, meaning meaning motion picture film. On on film, you you use light to illuminate areas that are dark, and you try and protect the blacks by making blacks stay black. Uh, and high def is a complete inversion, which you're protecting of the whites, and you're trying to make it so that they don't clip. And uh, there's quite a difficult learning curve. Do you have any counter intel you can contribute to the good and the welfare? John, check your email. This is pennies in your pocket from Emilio Estefan. And Montoya is driving through the streets of Ciudad del Este. What happens is that people buy massive amounts of computer components, DVD players, anything and everything electronic in Ciudad del Este. Because they tend to move these goods someplace, they dump the packing. So the streets are littered with styrofoam every single night, almost like there's a blizzard of styrofoam. They're picked over, and then trucks come through and pick them all up. And by the time the sun rises, the streets are all immaculate again, and other days of commerce begins. It's, imagine a, a crazy Eddie's retail, wholesale retail outlet, uh, except with 300,000 employees. That's about, that's Ciudad Leste. Yarrow has an intuitive sense they're wrong, that Crockett and Tubbs are wrong. But Montoya believes Isabella and rejects the, the thesis of, of uh, Yarrow that somehow he just knows these guys are wrong. And part of the motive for Yarrow's strong feelings revealed in the scene, which is just about to transpire right here. One of my favorite actors in the uh, piece is, is John Ortiz. John Ortiz is, came to my attention in a hilarious cameo that he has in NARC, Joe Carnahan's picture, in which he plays a guy that they bust who just uh, set his wife's hair on fire. It's a very grim, dark thing, but it's hysterically funny at the same time. And uh, I just felt he was my kind of actor. and. Uh, so I cast him as Jose Yarrow, and uh, I think he did an extraordinary job. He has a theater company in New York City with Philip Seymour Hoffman, and we'll be doing a play in um, 
in the, in the beginning of uh, 2007. Uh, after he appeared here, Ridley Scott uh, cast him in American Gangster with uh, Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe. It's like gravity. You cannot negotiate with gravity. One day... One day you should just cash out, you know? Just cash out and get out. Yeah? Yeah, as far and as fast as you can. Would you fund me? Yes, I would. This is very Cuban, the protective... The sense of this scene was that, that uh, we try to convey was that Crockett almost was breaking the fourth wall, which is a theatrical term. It's when you break out of your role and actually address the audience directly. And, and it's almost as if Crockett is trying to break out from behind the color of his identity because he's fallen for this woman and trying to warn her that uh, things don't go on forever. Um, do you have insurance? Can you bail? Can you get out? And he also makes a declaration that if he were her husband, and this is something that she sensed in him as the foundation of why she's drawn so strongly to this guy, that if he were her husband, he wouldn't allow her to be within a thousand miles of anything that could hurt her. He wouldn't, he wouldn't put her into risk the way she's put into risk. And she takes in what he says, almost as if she wants to savor it. But then she turns back to the real world. Look around you. Because what do we see around? Everything in her life is controlled by uh, Arangel, uh, which is spelled like Archangel. The Spanish pronunciation is exactly as Gongli pronounces it here. Uh, the Jesus Montoya and Antonio. This is our freighter that we uh, basically owned and ran for months. Uh, it, we painted a different color, and uh, our department did a great job aging it. Uh, Tubbs is setting up a way with disinformation to um, isolate which agency is responsible for the leak that resulted in the death of Alonzo in the beginning of the film. And so he's leaking the ship's intent, these smugglers, their attempted smuggling to different days for different agencies and assuming that the leak that gives information to Yarrow will come back. And depending on what day they say the transshipment's going to happen, uh, that'll illuminate which agency is involved in it. This scene at the, in the river is on the river that runs through Santa Domingo. So we're right in uh, the Dominican Republic on Santa Domingo, and it was used as a, as a uh, dock for the shipping, and still is used for sugar. So it's the sugarcane products out of the Dominican Republic that has financed all of this, and the hyacinths clogging the river uh, gave it to me a real sense out of Joseph Conrad or in the heart of darkness, as it were. The conflicted relationship uh, where, where Crockett and Isabella are impassioned about each other and at the same time it has no future. 
that ended the walk on a Ramblas is uh, may, it, here. There's a sense of they're trying to maintain the fiction of it. Meanwhile, uh, Yarrow is receiving information of, from a source and transmitting it. The freighter is actually uh, shot in two locations. We brought the freighter to the Dominican Republic, and since this top speed of this boat is about seven knots, it takes a long time. Uh, the owner of the boat's a woman, and she is Ecuadorian. And it, it, it plies the routes of small freighters that move throughout the Caribbean. Typically, people may come from Haiti and come to work in Miami for a while and buy a lot of appliances, which they will then send back to their families in Ecuador or Haiti. Right here in these shots, we were out in the Gulf Stream again, east of Miami. But in the earlier shots, we were actually operating north of the Dominican Republic and the Caribbean. One of the things that attracted me to use high-def digital video again was the uh, the promise of uh, of the kind of burnished, sun-baked uh, imagery I could make in daylight. Uh, I think there aren't that many day scenes in the film, but one of the scenes that yielded when I was after was the scene that just took place on the roof of the bridge. Transship. You need a boat to uh, anchor with like basically like a trolley cable, and then with uh, carabiners attached to bales and wrapped in waterproof blue plastic. You uh, dump it overboard as fast as possible, and as fast as possible is because boats are supposed to move, as Tubbs says in one of his lines of dialogue. That's why they call them ships. When a ship is standing still, it attracts suspicion because AWACS and uh, coastal radar is, is observing everything all the time, all ship movements all the time. The uh, name for this technique is called is called dope on a rope instead of rope on a dope, rope a dope. And that's a lot more difficult than it sounds, particularly at night with, uh, with no lights on, um, to unload a freight from a freighter into fast boats, and the fast boats will, will run it in. And typically, these are driven by guys who know the whole South Florida uh, underwater topography like the palm of their hand. They know where there's reefs that come up within, to within two feet of the surface, and they know where there's channels within those reefs. This kid, whose character's name is Slim, 
His name is, in fact, James Maurice Rowan Jr., and uh, he and the woman who plays his mother, whose name is Deborah Demir, we encountered in trailer park that we were scouting and had the idea to, I had the idea to recruit them, and uh, they kindly agreed to work in the scene as actors, and uh, they're very, very good, I think. When Trudy was captive, she never stopped working. And she knew she was being held hostage because the people wanted to get something, get some, compel some behavior from Crockett and Tubbs. So they would have to prove that she's alive, meaning they would have to put her on the phone. And she knew that would be her one opportunity to convey something, some clue about where she was. So she was trying to think about what to say or how, and, and trying to, to discover herself where in fact she was. And that's why even when blindfolded, she looks around and we hear in um, an exaggerated uh, level the, the airplane. And so she knows she's near an airport. Yeah. We didn't listen to this. Who are you? We had tried to project in 2005 when we shot the scene what the hurricane season in 2006 would be and uh, how far that we would have progressed in the alphabet in 2006. So the weatherman is talking about a hurricane and we named it Ernesto because we thought we'd be at about E when the movie came out July 27th, 2006 and we were off. Uh, the hurricane didn't get named Ernesto until actually the beginning of September. This is uh, newscast, Miami newscaster Julie Yarbrough take, playing herself. This is a dead accurate methamphetamine lab, and uh, this lab could produce methamphetamine. Prop department, the set decorating department, had put together, and the art department had put together such a, a uh, realistic trailer interior in which the walls have been taken out so the different kinds of wallpaper abut each other because the separations are gone and the, um, the, the the chemistry for methamphetamine is complex and dangerous and um, it's uh, it was so accurate that the chief of police of the city of Miami came by with and brought some other folks by to take a look at it this is Bojean's shipyard where Coleman is calling Crockett from, and we realized because of uh, the, the cutaway to Yarrow that Yarrow is in fact the architect of everything that's happening. You have 15 minutes. And, and we know his male intent towards Crockett and Tubbs is uh, profound, and he has an emotional root that's somewhat irrational in the fact that he is the unrequited lover of Isabella. He's secretly in love with her. What's the deal? We're doing the deed, 30% off the load. Crockett and Tubbs are climbing down the side of the uh, Merck Trader. This is shot as it looks at night at, at sea. And they're jumping onto two Donzies, the uh, gray boat, the gray blue boat. The Crock and Tubbs are in is a 43-foot uh, ZR. It's got two 600-horsepower engines. Had that boat up to about 90, 95 miles an hour in Biscayne Bay. Mm -hmm. 
the boat that Swai Tuxedo and Gina left in is a 38-foot ZR, also made by Donji. Donji is a manufacturer. As a company, it was begun by a man named Hank Arno. Hank Arno, uh, it was his second company making uh, deep V and V-shaped hull speedboats, which were his innovation. His first company was a company called Cigarette that made the cigarette boat. So Cigarette became a generic term for these kind of boats, but in fact, it was a brand name. He sold that company and then, uh, um, and then started Donji. Everybody was buying these boats, from uh, U.S. Customs and the DEA to all kinds of guys running loads. This is a beautiful helicopter shot, again, in a helicopter. I was in this helicopter when we were shooting this, and it was piloted, again, by Craig. And um, there was something so uh, enthralling about being in government cut with the big freighters at night shooting these shots. And it's another reason why I use high-def video, because it sees, not only is it seen in the night, but the extraordinary depth of field allows you to see the foreground of Tubbs' face in focus and close. In the background, you can still make out the shapes and it still feels real. If it were filmed, they would just be amorphous, um, diffused, defocused kind of blobs of light. By the way, that term fast boats is not a, a term that we made up for the screenplay. It is a term that's used by both smugglers and also uh, law enforcement in Miami, where there's obviously so much smuggling done by boats, and they just categorize boats as go-fast boats. Um, so go-fast has actually became a kind of a classification, meaning some boat that's going to uh, not withstand weather its main method of subterfuge is, in fact, it's just its speed, and they're just—they just drive balls out. And typically, will have run if they're not running a load in from the Bahamas. Uh, typically, they're running a load in from a uh, small freighter or mothership. The place of Port Bridge in Miami has this spectacular um, blue underlighting. This uh, Geneva, which is where Isabella is, is in fact the old section of uh, Montevideo near the harbor. Montevideo in Uruguay is a very, very deep, cold South Atlantic harbor, and it's a natural harbor, and it's uh, the, the scale of the harbor and the scale of the shipping there is quite incredible. The famous German battleship Graf Spray was, was sunk just outside of that harbor. It had been blockaded in that harbor for towards, for the end of the Second World War, and it was, uh, it was scuttled right at the end of the war. So, toes a year old, you're hitting a rip. 
in the editing of the Salt on the Trailer Park is some of the best work of Billy Goldenberg. Billy Goldenberg first came to work with me. He's one of the two editors. The film was edited by Billy Goldenberg and Paul Rebell. Billy first worked with me as the fourth editor on uh, Heat. Uh, we then went on to do, among other things, um, the Ali film together, and we also did Insider. Um, and Paul Rebell worked with me on Collateral, and we did Insider together. They're, they're very close friends. They just about go to work together. They're great guys, and they work completely collegially so that Billy will work on a scene, show it to Paul. Sometimes if Billy gets burned out on a scene, he'll give it to Paul and vice versa. So the editing room that we have on Miami Vice is, so consequently, it's very much a sense of coming home when you get done shooting the picture and able to get into the editing room and kind of hang with the guys. And it's as if you just wrapped collateral a week ago, and now you're stepping right back in the same editing room. against a clock because Coleman believes that the Crockett and Tubbs and the whole group are on these two boats heading up the Miami River to a rendezvous where the, where the drugs are going to get handed over when in fact Crockett, Tubbs and Gina have separated and are invading the trailer park to try and liberate Trudy because they know that once Coleman has his hands on the and the goods, uh, she's dead. Sonny, Ricardo. Copy. I'm approaching on a west parallel street. It's clear. Sonny's in position on the east. Four people, two shooters. All the techniques that you're seeing here are, are techniques that Jamie and Colin and Elizabeth worked on for months prior to moving in here. It's exactly the kind of infiltration, uh, the real silent infiltration that would be done. Uh, their positions at the, at the outside of the trailer park, everything is tactically really right, and they learn how to do this and do it uh, for real, working on the Miami PD SWAT team, on the SWAT team ranges and all that training, supervised by this, the Miami Dade SWAT range masters, which was all done with live ammunition. And the, the logic is that Regina has got a quadrant, which is kind of a quarter of a pie, and that's all she's, she is guarding against any intrusion from that. She trusts that on her right, Crockett will take out anything that's coming from his side, and that's how... A, uh, in close quarter combat, how a, a small fire team would operate. And it, the basis of that is the trust that each has in the other, which means they have to train and work as a unit. So a lot of the training that we did on the range was to get have them have that, that unified nice. sense of reliance on each other. Show me. Go ahead. Fuck it, we can all go. That's cool. That's not what happens. 
the yield dramatically is for me, there's a sense of authenticity in, in the way I see them move and how they handle their guns and how they handle their weapons that increases believability. Even more importantly for the actor, they know that they are doing it the right way and, and it has become reflex, it become reflexive for them. And that gives them a, a confidence in their character because they know that as individuals, as, as human beings with a SAG card, they can actually truly do what the character is supposed to be doing. And that fills them with a certain kind of confidence and that becomes a kind of an organic thing that pervades everything the character does and strangely might manifest itself in a, a certain attitude, a certain tough-mindedness in a scene that's purely a dialogue scene. But it'll be based on the fact that they each know that in and of themselves they can in fact do everything that the character does. In working with John Ortiz, I very much wanted him to convey a sense of indifference. I, I find that uh, there's it, something profoundly disturbing and uh, evil about life-taking aggression in general once a crime of passion. And there's something even more upsetting and more evil about it when it's done dispassionately, almost to the point of disinterest. And that's the quality I wanted uh, to to occur right here when when uh, when Yero is uh, remotely triggering what he's about to trigger. Yero's attention is now going to uh, you know what are, what are the night's proceeds on roulette table six as he pushes the button, and that disinterest in my mind is a counterpoint for everything that we feel about Trudy having just been liberated and how precious to us and precious to, to Tubbs is, is her life and that's what's about to be uh, blown to pieces and, and destroyed. This night that we shot this, we were about five minutes away from the sun coming up, and the sky has that telltale illuminated blue in it. Terrific cooperation we got from Jackson Memorial Hospital, where we, in fact, are filming the scene. We're in the actual OR, filling it with all of the OR staff and the nurses, and and what would happen there, including what would actually have happened to Trudy if she was hit uh, in the back with an explosion. 
uh, like this. And we had tremendous cooperation from these folks, not just to shoot this scene, but to shoot a couple other scenes that also take place in the hospital. And then also just as as the go-to people for this entire production, so that if we're shooting at night, so typically something would happen at 3 in the morning and somebody had an injury and they needed first aid or they needed to go to emergency uh, for something relatively minor, we would call these folks and particularly through working through Dr. Mark Soloway, um, we'd call these folks and, you know, some doctor would rouse out of bed and meet us in the emergency ward. We became very friendly and very close with them, so consequently when we premiered the film in Miami, we did it, uh, I wanted to do it as a benefit for, uh, for Dr. Soloway's, for Jackson Memorial Hospital and Dr. Soloway's uh, Cancer Research Center there. The other doctor who helped us out quite a bit was Dr. Danny Sleeman, who who's a who's a trauma surgeon, and um, I asked for for pictures and and background to so I could explain to Trudy, as well as as uh, as well as apply to her uh, what the damage would be from explosions, and uh, it, was, it was it was it's it's pretty horrendous, uh, both a flash burn and then with the shock. Uh, wave does to uh, soft tissue. I will recover the load. Yarrow, meanwhile, is in deep trouble because, as as Gong Li said, he acted on his own, and um, he's in trouble with Montoya in in this scene. Go ahead. But he reverses his fortunes in provoking um, Montoya's realization that the romance going on between Crockett and Isabella, which Montoya both knew about and sanctioned, is, is not casual, that, that romantically and emotionally uh, Isabella is no longer trustworthy. This is not casual. Yero said to Montoya, is one of my favorite lines in, in, in the picture, and I, I like this. The, sim the simplicity of it, four words, this is not casual. As a writer, you try to hit lines like that. It, they mean to say that very few words and uh, are very small, but mean, mean more. There's a great piece of lightning here. We were a day away from, uh, I believe, another tropical storm coming in. Or in fact, or it may have been Hurricane Rita was at that point a tropical storm and was a day and a half away or two days away, and this was the this was the uh, the front, uh, not not even bands of that system, but this is the front of that system starting to come in. There was no danger, and there was no. This wasn't even adverse. It wasn't even raining, but the uh, but you could see the skies were getting kind of angry looking. Cut the grab. You got my follow-up, man. You got my money. That's right. Here's the deal. We have a deal. Here's a new deal. Cash money. Three a key times 4,000 keys is 12 mil. And we ain't waiting for a back nine. We had a different deal. Crockett is surprised by the call from your bold effrontery of it, but he organizes his what he's going to do very quickly. And Colin, with beautiful little subtle moments there where you see Colin organize uh, organize himself and, and try to analyze and figure out what the situation is and how to play this. And the realization he comes to is that Yarrow very much has to get the product back because he's in trouble. I'll wait. 
That's worth $60 million in wholesale. Because if you're there, guarantees it's for real. Tomorrow night, I be there. We call you with the place. But what Crocker wants is Yero in the United States. Now we'll follow up with the ME identifying all the DNA samples. Euro's coming back to the U.S. to recover his product. He's coming back himself. How do we deal? How do we do a deal? I mean, how's anybody going to believe anybody after tonight? Nobody does. He's compelled. We got his 4,000 keys worth 60 million at wholesale. That's right. What I love about working with my pal Shabaka is that he really has a natural authority and his, and his, whether it's about power or about just poetry, the soulfulness of the guy is always, is always present. I run it. I run it. They won't initiate until they got eyes on a product. And I won't let the product come in until we've got their shooters in our sights. And you have cover. Okay. I don't care how much we want this guy. Clear? Yeah. There's something I'd ask you to look at right here, and that's the expression on Jamie's face. It, it is one of the finest moments of his performance in this film, and it's world-class. It's my great privilege to work with actors like Fox and Shabaka and John Ortiz and Colin. With a simple line like, you're all mine now, and then especially with the incredible Gong Wei. Do you want to call him? Who's capable of, of so much meaning and, ver and moving through different variations within a moment that it generates a feeling of a real life and uh, intelligence and complexity. Satan. This is kind of a wacky scene. We did, uh, we had to quickly figure out where this dialogue scene was gonna take place. And it was an orphan that didn't have any location. And it kept shifting from one locale to another locale. And we had to be at the airport anyway. So, um, so I decided just to put it in this airplane hangar and to throw some props we had around, like the Ferrari and the A500 airplane and, uh, and Mojo on its trailer. And so we moved that all in there. And then the hangar that I picked happened to just be across the road from the Miami-Dade PD helicopter hangar where they repair all their helicopters. So those guys were kind enough to push a couple of helicopters across the tarmac in our hangar. And it all kind of fell together in about an hour. Money manager. And it uh, and, and turned into, I think, one of the most satisfying to me as, as a filmmaker locations we had because it brought a lot of, a lot of what they do together. And you, and it, it kind of reminded you in an extremely subtle, almost unconscious way that they're the police department. These are props for them. And then the, 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 uh, the, the work of Jamie and Colin was particularly good at that moment. Uh, 
And it happened right just after the sun had gone down. So you had this duality of the brightly lit white interior and, yet, and, and the darkening sky on the outside, which was a fitting environment leading up to the uh, confrontation of all the issues, every conflict in the picture, the romance between Crockett and Isabella, and what's going to happen when Isabella realizes that Crockett is not Sonny Burnett, he's Sonny Crockett, he's a cop. Possibly the confrontation between Tubbs and Yarrow, who blew up Trudy. The location got changed. Bojean Shipyard, 27th in the river. Crockett and Tubbs are both in confrontation with Coleman and the Aryan brothers who killed the FBI agents and Alonzo's wife were responsible for uh, everything that initiated all the physical conflicts in the picture in the first place. Stall. The situation is that they're walking into what they know to be an ambush and they're walking into an ambush with people who are lethal, uh, have weapons in their hands and outnumber them. Where's the product? Where's the money? How do I know what you say is there is there? Here's how that works. Somebody from my side lays eyes on the money. Only then do we call in the dope, and somebody from your side can go look at the product. And the condition that Castillo set up was that he would not allow the product called in until they spotted the snipers who we saw earlier on with their 50 copper Barretts when the FBI were killed. Where's your? Right here. And I brought your friend. Oh, yeah, Mano, she mine now. I was in a quandary about whether or not to use Indiana Night uh, or a piece of score in this, in this scene. Uh, and that quandary was emblematic about the whole prospect of making Miami Vice's a motion picture. The music is in the air tonight by a group called Nonpoint. And it's the, the use of this cue here, in, in a strange way, is emblematic on the whole idea of making Miami Vice as a feature film in the first place, because um, if, if the music had never existed until 2006, it would have been obvious to go ahead and use it here because it's, it's, it's a terrific piece. And Nine Point's performance of it is very good. But it brings back so strongly the pilot so then you're dealing with, with memory, as mem cultural memory of the show, as memory exists in the audience. And the memory of the show in the minds of audience is very different for different people. People remember the show differently. They like different things about it. Some folks like the pastels and the flamingos. Other folks like the writing of the, uh, and, and the power of the stories in the first couple of years. Uh, other folks may have been younger when they saw it. They may have been 10, 11, 12, and they just kind of liked the grooved on a style for five years. So the motion picture 
uh, I knew was going to be delivered into an audience that had a complex and divergent set of attitudes about it. So the advantage of it, in a way, is that the brand name Miami Vice is known. The disadvantage is, is that it means many different things to many different people. In the theatrical version of the picture, there's a very good and very uh, precise piece of score by John Murphy. And ultimately, in this director's cut, the piece I, I prefer is uh, In the Air Tonight. This shipyard that we're shooting in is called Bojeans, and it's spelled B-O-J-E-A-N-S. In fact, it's probably named after some guy named Jean, J-E-A-N, and B, it should have been spelled B-E-A-U. So one could imagine that sometime 200 years ago or something, 150 years ago, there was a Frenchman named Jean, and he settled or did something here on this, on this, uh, this little piece of land on the Miami River. What is implicit in the choreography of Crockett and Tubbs and Gina and Zito and Switek, and it is implicit, it's not explicit, is, is underlying what they're doing as very sound tactics. And I think audiences are very perceptive and very smart, and they may not know anything tactically, but nevertheless, I think they sense that there is a logic, and then they've come to understand or see the, the geographical sense of the logic. What they're working towards is that in two teams, Crockett and Tubbs is one team and, and Gina and Zeta is another, they're diverging along an L shape. It's as if Gina and Zito on the the base of the L moving away from the vertical along the horizontal, and Crockett and Tubbs are moving up the long straight part of the L, and each is covering the other. So Crockett is covering Tubbs while Tubbs moves, and Tubbs lays down fire and allows Crockett to move as they move up the vertical part of the L, and Gina and Zito do the same thing, moving laterally in the other direction along the, the base part of the L. Uh, and the reason they're doing that is that that's going to increase the divergence of their two angles of fire. And if you increase the divergence, it means that the other side, the other guys, their cover is being reduced by about 50%. They have 50% less place to hide. And so the superiority that Crockett and Tubbs and Gina and Trudy would have as a group that has... Uh, real trigger time and real serious skills is that they're tactically superior. And right now, exactly what I'm talking about, where, where Gina from one position and Crockett from a more divergent angle both fire on the same guy. So the Aryan brothers and, and uh, Yero's people, there may be more of them but they have none of the skill sets.
And here's the moment, this is the penultimate moment of the film, which Tubbs warned Crockett about and asked him about, which is that Isabella has just realized that Crockett's a cop. And Tubbs has just killed Yarrow um, with a grenade launcher. There is a special forces captain in the war in Vietnam who was kind of a famous figure. His name was Bob Moberg. And um, I spent some time with him in Thailand in the middle 80s. And he was telling me about some adventures he had when they were dropping people behind the lines of the DMZ, and he was flying helicopters. And uh, for, his weapon of choice was to have a grenade launcher, and then he would take the 40-millimeter uh, grenade off off of it and, and mount a, sh a, a shell that he had concocted of ball bearings. And um, as a single-shot scattergun, because they were doing these drops in about 20 seconds, and they would be doing it right after total darkness. And it was very, very risky, and that's where the idea came from behind the weapon that Tubbs is using here. As a director, you start having images very early on in a, in a project. That's how a project becomes alive to you. And some of these images in, that occur in your imagination uh, uh, happen even before you're, you're writing it. Some some come up in a matter of, you know, when you're writing a screenplay and suddenly just pop in your head and you'll have something, you know, lock on it when you think that's really, you know, that that's an excellent thing to try and pull off. But the um, some images that just kind of show up even before you're writing a screenplay, uh, when the idea is first forming, um, become really evocative and you hold on to them. And one of them was, was Crockett's, once I had the idea of this, of this dilemma, that Crockett's undercover and uh, falls in love with the woman who's a target. And then, it's, then we, the audience, realize that in a way she's undercover too and you don't know whether there's true love going on here or that, it's, or that both people are, are in fact, uh, working each other and you emotionally conclude in that the emotionality between them is what's true and real and most profound but that the romance is completely impossible it cannot happen so they exist in a romance in a in a zone that's uh kind of kind of a, a dimension of non-reality it's only in their fabricated identities in this non-reality this sometimes lethal theater that the that this romance can exist. So it's very fragile and it's and it's only of the moment. It's a vanescent that can't last for forever. 
And as Tubbs says, when fabricated identity and what's really up collapse into the same frame, meaning the same piece of time and space when objective reality really shows up and that's the context you find yourself in, and she will realize who he truly is and he has to deal with her realization of it. Uh, at that point, uh, what's going to happen? What is, what is the nature of that, of that, of that conflict, of that, of that collision, of that explosion? And one of the images that came to mind was Crockett driving her away in a car that had been in the shootout and was was was, was shot full of holes and uh, had pieces missing. And that um, she was in some way, almost as if he had arrested her, or she was in some way captive. And the anger between them as he was escaping into the night in a, in a car that had been all shot up. And that was just a, a visual thing that just occurred to me. And um, those things, at the end of the day, come hella high water, you manage to, to shoot those and produce them. This house is a house in the Florida Keys, and uh, it's withstood 50 years worth of uh, hurricanes. It's very stoutly built, and given its location, if the walls can talk, I'm sure many kinds of exotic substances have, you know, have found their way into and through and out of this place. This is Audio Slave's excellent The Shape of Things to Come. I'm a big admirer of Chris Cornell's vocals and Tom Morello's guitar work. We work together on uh, Collateral, and uh, this is our second movie. There are two unreleased audio slave cuts in the picture. With all the weather we had on this show that was sometimes very dramatic but caused uh, all kinds of, of difficulties for us, as you can imagine, the, the logistical uh, complexity and requirements of, mound, of, of about 350 people, the trucks and vehicles, and the huge film crew making a movie, and every day you have to do exactly the work for that day. And now you throw uh, the Tropical Storm Dennis, then Hurricane Rita, then Hurricane Katrina into that, then one where in the Dominican Republic, Hurricane Wilma showed up and flattened Miami, and we, the Miami that we had to come back to. So all the vicissitudes that were caused by the, the weather during that season, it's, it's like the weather owed us one, and it's paid its debt on this day when we were in the House of the Keys because um, I couldn't have asked for anything more kind of uh, kind of harmonic or harmonious to the scene than these palm trees being blown around by this wind while the wind was also hitting Crockett's hair and Isabella's hair. And uh, you know, the wind swept skies. And, uh, and it was strange because when we weren't shooting, it was very still. And as soon as we began to shoot, the wind came up. And... Uh, and it was just absolutely accidental. What wasn't accidental are the trees. We planted about 14 of them because I wanted more, more trees on that lot. But I didn't expect the, the wind to come up. I found the um, mood of it you know, kind of striking. And it was particularly because uh, the ground is gray, the water was kind of muddy brown and gray, and the sky was gray. And it, it had a certain cold uh, coldness in the air that, uh, that, that I found very real. I would have had difficulty if it was one of these beautiful Floridian days where everything would look like a picture postcard.
There's a flatness on, like, on the shot right now. Isabella leaving and Crockett standing by the trees and the way the tree trunks cross, that uh, flatness that, uh, for me in any way, speaks of um, the, force, the forced separation of departure, of leaving something that you know you can't go back to, but it's, it is that, exactly that thing that you will remember the rest of your life. Olivier was famous for needing the wardrobe. He needed to see himself in the mirror. And when he saw himself in the mirror and he looked like the guy, that be, then became the medium with which he could then get to that place where it is immediate and powerful and happening for real. And so too with Fox. In his best scenes, he's doing exactly that. And the moment when she is in the bed, I wouldn't reveal what he's imagining, but what he's imagining is a deep emotional truth. It definitely comes across on a theater screen. I don't know how much of it comes across in a video. The depth of, of emotion and meaningfulness that Gong Li is capable of. There's so many shots that uh, reveal that and show that, and uh, this this is one of them. There's not a inauthentic feeling behind her eyes. You're looking at an actress who's living and experiencing exactly that moment as real as she can imagine it. She's a unique combination of, um, I think, both as an actress and also as a person of um, sensitivity. Uh, almost like raw nerve type sensitivity and, and and vulnerability. And usually that occurs in a person who, the concomitant to that is usually a certain amount of fragility. He's a fragile person and they have these kind of sensitivities. And that's not the case with, with Lee. She is, she is tremendously strong and uh, has, is a high, and has the confidence and very healthy ego of a, um, of a person who is uh, very well prepared, uh, has a classical acting education, knows his stuff, has a ferocious work ethic, and somebody like that and the preparation they do and how far they're, they want to go and how much they want to extend themselves into accruing to themselves the expertise that their character would have. Uh, it's, it's an extent in itself is extraordinary, but it also yields an actress who is very strong and very confident. And that, in combination with, with vulnerability, the, the, the willingness to open themselves up to emotional experience and, and go and, and feel the extent of that feeling and, and loss and dislocation and what it must be to be chattel property. Uh, somebody who's living in a, in a gilded cage uh, and, and has the, the benefits of uh, of the kind of money she's making with Montoya, but she's owned by Montoya body and soul and has been ever since she was 17, 18, 19 and they first met. And we decided at her age when she was in her early 30s. And um, uh, so, so to experience that and, and the loss of true love uh, in as raw a way as Lee did in the connection with, with uh, Crockett and, and the lovemaking scenes, uh, talking about her mother. I mean, it's, it, it, it's very emotional. What's so what is unusual about the combination is that you find that degree of sensitivity in somebody who is as stable and rock solid um, as, as, as Gong Li. And it's, uh, it's a privilege and honor to work with, with actors like that. Every actor is, is, is different. Uh, uh, Colin is, also has a formal acting education, and so the the places that he's willing to push himself and for him his experience of working with 
with Gongley, and my experience of working with Colin was also one of a kind of a classical approach to uh, to to acting and to performance, and um, and he also has the same willingness to to be prepared and push himself out to the edge. He pushed himself so far out to the edge in some of the training that he overdid some of the physical aspects of it and uh, had a couple of herniated discs and popped a rib out of his sternum, which became very painful. Uh, we realized something was wrong when Colin uh, Gwangli and I were in Havana together and he suddenly started having some acute chest pain. Um, with with Jamie Foxx, it's, it's an entirely different modality and that's what makes directing so fascinating because you have to direct in the language of the actor that you're working with. You have to understand their method and their approach. And Jamie's brilliance as an actor comes from uh, his accruing characteristics that he observes. And in learning, it's a form of learning that you would call mimicry. And because he, he mimes or he, or he imitates uh, the behavioral characteristics, the language characteristics, the attitude, the body language of one, two, or three different people. And I first observed that in Living Color when he was doing Living Color, and I said I wanted to work with him from, uh, in a dramatic role from, from back, th back then. Um, I had the first chance and I decided I would cast him as Bundini, and I think that his work as Bundini and Ali is as profound or more profound than any piece of work I've ever seen Jamie Foxx do. Um, with the exception of Ray. I mean, Ray is obviously, if she won the Academy Award, is, is a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. But the lower depths that he had to plumb as an actor and a man to realize the moment in the Flophouse, uh, that's, that's just world-class stuff. But the taking upon himself the physical characteristics, the mimicry, is not what Jamie Foxx does, it's how he does it, because he uses that as a means to get to that distant, difficult place of emotional truth. <laughs> 